Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. One of Washington's favorite parlor games has started. Who will President Biden nominate? The lead starts right now. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring, giving President Biden his first shot to fill a high court seat. A look at the potential picks. Then signed, unsigned, and unsealed rather, and delivered, the United States gives Russia a letter outlining a way out for Vladimir Putin. What we know about the secret document. And the time to refi is now. Today's Fed announcement, which could make buying a house or a car more expensive soon. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we start today with breaking news in our politics lead. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer expected to announce his retirement as early as tomorrow. But the 83-year-old, who has served nearly three decades on the high court, plans to stay on until a replacement is confirmed. That replacement is now in President Joe Biden's hands, his first chance to nominate someone to the highest court in the land. And today, he refused to answer questions about Breyer's retirement. But as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, the White House suggests he is ready to fulfill a campaign promise on who he'll pick. With Justice Stephen Breyer set to retire, President Biden now has his first chance to nominate a new justice to the Supreme Court. There has been no announcement from Justice Breyer. Let him make whatever statement he's going to make, and I'll be happy to talk about it later. The president declining to go into detail ahead of a formal announcement expected tomorrow. As sources say Breyer informed the West Wing of his decision last week. Every justice has the right and opportunity to decide what he or she is going to do and announce it on their own. Biden now faces a major decision, as aides say he is still committed to this promise that he made on the campaign trail. If I'm elected president, have an opportunity to appoint someone to the courts, will be a, I'll appoint the first black woman to the courts. It's required that they have representation now. It's long overdue. The president has uh, stated and reiterated his commitment to nominating a black woman to the Supreme Court and certainly uh, stands by that. At 83, Breyer is the oldest justice on the bench, and his decision to retire has prompted a sigh of relief among Democrats who feared a Republican takeover in the upcoming midterm elections, something Breyer himself has hinted at publicly. I think I uh, have most of the considerations in mind, and I simply have to weigh them and think about them and decide when the proper time is. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promising today that Biden's pick will receive a prompt hearing and be confirmed with all deliberate speed. Democrats can confirm a justice without Republican support, but must keep their slim majority together to do so, which Republican Senator Lindsey Graham noted today, telling the GOP, quote, elections have consequences, and that is most evident when it comes to fulfilling vacancies on the Supreme Court. 
Now, Pam, when it comes to actually confirming these nominees, in recent decades it has taken anywhere from 30 days to 106. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has indicated privately that he would like to move at the timeline that Republicans use to confirm Amy Coney Barrett. Of course, that is the Supreme Court justice who was confirmed just days before the 2020 election. It was only 30 days from when former President Trump had nominated her to the Supreme Court before her confirmation hearing was done, and she was confirmed to the Supreme Court. So that timeline remains to be seen of what they use. We do know that Senator Joe Manchin has just issued a statement on this news today. He says he looks forward to meeting with and evaluating the qualifications of whomever it is that President Biden picks. All right, Caitlin Collins from the White House for us. Thanks so much. And let's bring in CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Piscupic. Joan, good to see you. So this decision to stay on until his successor is confirmed is basically unheard of. So walk us through Breyer's thinking with this. Sure. Thanks, Pamela. He's been struggling with this. You know, he was under a lot of pressure last year to step down as soon as the Senate turned to a Democratic majority in in January of 2021. And he resisted that pressure. But now, Pamela, he is leaving nothing to chance by with this January announcement and the caveat that he will not leave until a successor is confirmed. Just in terms of the sheer timing, it hasn't been since 1993 that a justice even announced his retirement in March. And this is, you know, nearly two months before that. So he wants to give President Biden plenty of time to seat someone to get that person in place for the term that would start next October. And even more importantly, Pam, to get this person in place before the midterm elections when the Senate could possibly flip. So he he thought about, you know, how to preserve uh, a Democratic president's chance to uh, appoint his successor. He was put on the bench by President Bill Clinton back in 1994. But he's, uh, you know, he did want to stay that extra term. And it looks like his gamble, which many of his critics said was a gamble, just in case the Democrats lost their slim one-vote majority, uh, could work out now. Certainly. Now, we know Biden's pick won't change the balance of the court. There's still six conservative justices who were nominated by Republican presidents. But tell us who Biden is considering and just how historic this moment is. It is, even though the ideological balance of this court is not going to change from the six conservatives and three liberals, presumably. It's that President Biden has vowed to put the first African-American woman in history on America's top court. And he has several sterling candidates uh, to choose from, many of whom you know, have already been vetted because of other positions they've had in the federal government and on the bench. And I would say leading that group is someone who actually had clerked for Justice Breyer, and that's Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's sitting right here, Pamela, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, a very prominent court and one that has been a stepping stone to the Supreme Court. She worked as a she was a trial judge, now an appellate judge. Uh, She's 51 years old. And most importantly, for the way you and Caitlin set this up, she has been supported in the past by uh, Senator Joe Manchin and uh, all Democrats. And she won uh, confirmation last year with the help of three Republicans. So there's probably a, a cushion there for her appointment. Another uh, leading candidate, I believe, would be uh, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, another person with sterling credentials who's been a judge for a long time. She's only 45. She'd be one of the younger choices uh, for a president, which would be, you know, these are lifetime appointments, would be quite a legacy. 
And then another one I want to point out, just because of the politics of the situation, is a woman who's now a district court judge, uh, Michelle Childs. She's now on the trial court in South Carolina, but she's been nominated by President Biden to that prominent D.C. circuit bench that uh, Judge Jackson is currently sitting on. And what's important for her is that she has been uh, House Minority House House Whip James Clyburn has been pushing her, and that's a very strong supporter to have in this kind of moment. Certainly is. Joan Biskupic, thank you for that. Let's discuss. We have Dana Niamalika Henderson with us. All right, so Dana, let's kick it off with you. Look, every president wants to put their stamp on the Supreme Court bench. This comes at a time when Biden is seeing sinking poll numbers, Mm -hmm. a stalled agenda. Just how important is this moment for Biden right now? It's important for all of the moments, for this moment politically, uh, because of all the points that you just made, and for history's sake. There's a reason why presidents want to do this, Uh, especially someone like Joe Biden, who was not just a senator who voted for and against uh, nominees, but was chairman of the Judiciary Committee and was in some ways and sometimes in a controversial uh, setting with with Clarence Thomas and others, maybe less so for him, with Stephen Breyer himself uh, when he was a nominee before then chairman Joe Biden's uh, uh, committee. But your point is very well taken. The the Democrats are in the dumps when it comes to uh, the energy that they have going into this midterm election. And so the hope among Democrats you talk to is that this will help to energize them. The flip side of that is very real. Any Supreme Court nominee, even if it's not going to change the makeup of the bench politically, ideologically, never mind uh, in other ways, uh, it will also get the you know, rev up the other side. We'll rev up the GOP. And already, I'm sure you are too, Pam. Both of you guys are probably getting text after text after text from the RNC, from the Trump organization saying, send money. They're going to they're gonna change the court, which isn't necessarily true. But it's a fundraising tool. It's a base energizer. Yeah, this, this happens every time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but this time it's in a, an election year, mm-hmm. uh, just before the November midterms. And Nia, you have congressional Democrats also making their voices heard, making sure Biden remembers his promise to nominate a black woman. Look at these tweets today. Congresswoman uh, Carolyn Maloney of New York, I look forward to at Joe Biden upholding his promise to nominate a black woman as the next Supreme Court justice. Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York, you promised us a black woman on the Supreme Court. Let's see it happen. Congresswoman Cori Bush of Missouri, it is past time for a black woman to be named in the Supreme to the Supreme Court. And the White House also uh, reiterating that Biden is likely to stick to his promise here, Nia. That's right. I mean, this was a promise that uh, he didn't need to be reminded of. Let's remember it came uh, after a conversation with Jim Clyburn uh, in 2020 as they were going uh, into that South Carolina primary and Clyburn trying to decide whether or not he was going to endorse uh, Joe Biden. And one of the conditions was that he would say that he would nominate a black woman uh, to the Supreme Court. And of course, he said that in that CNN debate in South Carolina. So this has been a long time coming, two years. Uh, in the making. And so now you have a situation where, as Dana said, Democrats haven't had a lot of W's uh, lately that they were able to put on the board. And this will certainly energize a particular segment of the base, right? I think it'll it'll energize certainly progressives and also black voters, too. Uh, you remember that Joe Biden famously said, you know, that, that black voters had his back and he would have uh, black voters' backs uh, as well. I think this will be uh, something you'll see uh, black voters really engaged in. I 
I think the confirmation hearings are going to be tough uh, and brutal, uh, and, and the Republicans are certainly uh, going to try to make her uh, out to be a radical, a liberal who's going to force feed your kids, uh, you know, critical race theory or something like that. Uh, but I definitely think it'll energize that black base of voters that has seen a bit of a softening in terms of their support for Biden. It's about 70, you know, 75 percent or so. He would like it to be 80 or 85 percent going into the midterms that are going to be so tough for his party. Right. But but, you know, Dana, when you look at the list of the frontrunners and Joan just laid them out, mm-hmm. the, at the top of that list is Justice Kat- Katanji mm-hmm. Brown Jackson. I just say judge. Um, so she is someone who was just confirmed mm-hmm. back in June 53. She had 53 votes in her favor. That means three Republicans voted for her. Do you expect, if she is in fact the nominee, do you expect there to be um, the, those GOP votes t- to to stick? Or do you expect there to be, a, you know, you expect that to change given the fact how Washington works? We all know how it is. And we all know, as, as Nia just pointed out, how Republicans, the RNC, they're all going to come out and attack whoever the nominee is. Yeah, it, it very well could. Uh, be that there will be bipartisan support. Now, the fact that we have to say that is indicative of the times. It wasn't that long ago that you had nominees from presidents of both parties that would pass overwhelming. Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was passed by like 96 to, to either nothing or one. I mean, it was overwhelming. And so it is possible that someone like her, I will say that the, the three Republicans who voted for Judge Jackson, uh, one of them was Lindsey Graham, who released the statement that was in uh, Caitlin's piece that said elections have consequences. That was just today, meaning Joe Biden is the free and fair president, which shouldn't have to be said, but that's effectively what he was saying. And he voted for Judge Jackson for the appellate bench that she's on. Um, it's totally plausible that he and perhaps other Republicans would vote yes. But this is important, Pam. It's important to underscore because we've had so many discussions about the filibuster, uh, and that's for legislation. In recent history, the filibuster for nominees and more recently Supreme Court nominees, it doesn't exist. So the fact that the Democrats have the majority, meaning they can schedule the hearing, they can schedule the votes, and they have even just, they don't have one vote to spare, but they've got it, they can, if all Democrats are supportive, they can pass the president's and confirm the president's nominee. And that is key here. But the bottom line is, even so, Biden's pick isn't going to change the conservative core, Nia. But big picture, is this going to have the impact that Democrats are hoping for? You know, listen, I think on the one hand, it is going to energize Democratic voters. You know, there's a long way to go for the midterms. Uh, we'll have this confirmation hearing. Folks will tune in uh, and they'll know that elections have consequences. I think the flip side of this is Republicans are really going to try to make this a tough vote uh, for Democrats in tough Senate races. People like uh, Mark Kelly, people like uh, Catherine Cortez uh, Masto. I imagine they'll get those votes, but you are going to see campaign ads for whoever this nominee is uh, linking her to the culture wars, linking her uh, to mask mandates, making her out to be a sort of radical leftist. And so in, in that way, you know, it's going to be good for Democrats on the one hand in terms of engaging their base, but it also, I think, has a downside and an upside uh, for Republicans as well. All right. Jana Bash, Nia Malika Henderson, thank you both. Thanks, Pam.
Well, it's a vaccine that could prevent a repeat of this pandemic. How realistic is a universal COVID vaccine? And then the confirmation hearing for Florida's top doctor gets so heated that some lawmakers walked out. We're going to tell you why after this break. And our health lead scientists are working to develop a universal coronavirus vaccine. This is according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, who says the shot could protect against COVID-19 variants, but also the other coronavirus variants that can affect humans, such as the ones that cause common colds and the severe respiratory disease known as SARS. Here to discuss is CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. I tell you, this really caught my attention, Sanjay. Walk us through this idea of a universal coronavirus vaccine. Is it even realistic? Yes, I I think so. I mean, you know, this is something that's been talked about for a long time, and the science is, is really fascinating. Basically, you know, you think about all those coronaviruses you just mentioned, four that cause more common cold like symptoms, but then also SARS from 2003, MERS virus, and then obviously this new. SARS-CoV-2, they have some things that are in common. It's basically trying to find the common denominator in all these coronaviruses and figure out if you can make an antibody to that specific thing. And if you do that, you're basically now targeting something that's a sort of a a conserved, consistent area of these viruses. And that's exactly what scientists are are trying to do. They say, what's in common here? Let's make antibodies to that. What's really interesting, I I talked to Professor Kevin Saunders even this morning, uh, Pamela, about this. He said that they have found antibodies from people who had been infected with SARS back in 2003 that actually would be, uh, have some protective effect against this virus mm. you know, 20 years later. So I think it's very realistic, and you know, it seems like it's getting closer and closer. That is fascinating. You know, we've heard that yeah. the Omicron variant is less lethal than Delta, but we're seeing deaths right now rise higher than the peaks of the Delta wave. So Is that just because Omicron is more transmissible? What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, that's basically it. I mean, you know, many more people are becoming infected. We can show you sort of the trajectory over the past uh, bit of time here. But when you have something that's that contagious, you can see on the right side of the screen, you get a lot more cases. Now, overall, as a percentage, hospitalizations and deaths are lower. But because you have so many more cases, you tend to have overall absolute numbers that are higher. In fact, you know, we did, we did this calculation here to basically show you if something is 50% more deadly versus 50% more contagious. You have two viruses. You're going to add, make one more deadly, one more contagious. What you find is that over time, the contagious one is going to lead to far more deaths because of the number of people, sheer number of people who get infected. So that's what's happening here. But as you also know, Pamela, numbers are starting to come down in many places around the country as well because people got infected quickly, and now we're starting to see that downward trend. A bit of good news on that front. So I want to turn to something else that's been going on today. The man appointed to serve as Florida Surgeon General had this confirmation hearing, and he has a history of spreading COVID misinformation. I want to get your response to one claim he made today. Listen. Prior to the pandemic, there were a number of randomized clinical trials that were performed of of masking in the community for prevention of of respiratory viral infections. Nearly all of these trials have found no significant benefit from masking to prevent the spread of a respiratory virus. These are published data. 
All right. So let's get right to what does the science say? Well, first of all, you know, there, there haven't been a lot of randomized trials of this. He, he's right about that. And it sort of raises this question, how many, how many times you have to show something in public health to work in order to believe it? I mean, there's, we don't have to continuously prove that penicillin works as an antibiotic either. We kind of at some point believe uh, that the effect, there's an efficacy of masks. It's not perfect, but that, you know, we use them in hospitals all the time. I mean, this is something that people have known for a long time. But we don't do that many randomized trials during the pandemic, it would have meant knowingly masking some people, not masking others, and seeing what happens. Public health experts aren't going to do that because they, they think masking is going to have benefit. So what you did find is in places around the country where they were using masks, and you compared them to places where there were no mask mandates, and you found a distinctive difference. That's sort of a way of looking at this sort of a little bit more uh, globally. There was also, there was a huge randomized clinical trial in Bangladesh, 350,000 people that showed masks, particularly surgical masks, did decrease transmission. So when he's talking about March or April of 2020, there weren't a lot of studies on masks and COVID at that time because this was just sort of kicking off. But he knows pretty well that there's been a lot of studies that have been published since then, including a very large one out of Bangladesh that really, I think, convinced a lot of people about the, the, the mask utility overall. Yeah, interesting. He didn't make note of that during the hearing. In fact, Democrats were so unhappy right. with some of his answers, he kept dodging when they would try to pin him down on on the efficacy of vaccines and masks that they walked out of that hearing. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks for your time. You got it. Thank you. It's all in the letter. That's what America's top diplomat is saying about the message hand-delivered to Russia today in hopes of stopping an invasion. Topping a worldly diplomacy and deterrence, Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. has delivered a formal written response to Russia's security demands regarding Ukraine. But the document is confidential. Blinken only describes it as a, quote, serious diplomatic path forward should Russia choose it. This, as sources tell CNN, the U.S. and a handful of its allies are discussing deploying thousands more troops to Eastern European NATO countries like Romania, Bulgaria and Hungary. CNN's Clarissa Ward is live in Kiev, Ukraine. Clarissa, is there any reaction yet from Moscow to this document from the U.S.? Well, the only reaction so far, Pamela, has been that they acknowledge that they have received uh, this written document. But we don't know whether they've read it yet, what the response to is it yet. Uh, We did hear earlier on in the day from the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who Uh, said that he hoped that it would contain the assurances that Russia needs. He also went on then to condemn the West for what he called engaging in a military frenzy uh, and using hysterical expressions and saying that, you know, if the West continues this aggressive line, that, quote, appropriate measures will be taken. Not clear exactly what those appropriate measures will be or, again, whether this document will do anything to assuage the fears of Moscow. There were some other talks that were going on today in the so-called Normandy format between Russia, Ukraine, France, Germany. The Russian negotiator at those talks said that basically they hadn't made very much progress at all, but they had, uh, you know, confirmed their commitment at least to a continued ceasefire in the Donbass region. That's where the pro-Russian separatists are in control of a significant chunk of territory. And he also said that the group would meet again in Berlin in two weeks' time. So it does appear now, perhaps, Pamela, 
Pamela, that we are in a phase where uh, there will be some room, hopefully, for diplomacy to to try to see if uh, it can bear any fruit. But it will be very interesting when we finally hear some word from Moscow about their response. And also very interesting at some point, ideally, to hear from President Putin himself, who has now gone, I believe, about one month without speaking at all on this topic, leaving everyone in the world, including all of us here, guessing. Right. And and we know that that's probably by design, right? Uh, Secretary Blinken, meantime, said several times, seems like he was putting an emphasis on the fact that there is no daylight between the U.S. and its partners across the board. That is what he said. Does that mesh with what you're hearing? So we know from the foreign minister who I interviewed yesterday um, that, you know, there were no issues on the Ukrainian side with the substance of this written document. Again, we don't know the details of what was in it, but uh, the Ukrainians appear to be supportive and happy with that in principle. But there are other areas where it seems like there's a little bit of daylight between the two sides. The foreign minister again saying this morning what he had said to us and others as well, uh, which is that essentially a Ukrainian intelligence does not believe at this stage that Russia has adequate troops on that border in order to sca- in, in order to launch a large scale invasion that of course is different from what we've heard uh, from the White House who have said many times that it could happen at any time I believe the wording that was used yesterday uh, was imminent but for the most part the Ukrainians really want to show at this stage that they are in lockstep with the US and that they are very grateful for the support coming from the US even if they have some minor disagreements about the messaging. All right, Closer Ward live in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you, Clarissa. Joining me live to discuss Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. He serves on the House Intelligence and Armed Services Committees, and he's a former Army Ranger. Congressman, thanks for your time. So Secretary of State Blinken said the U.S. won't publicly release its written responses to Moscow because, quote, we think that diplomacy has the best chance to succeed if we provide space for confidential talks. Do you think diplomacy stands any chance to succeed right now? Well, hi, Pamela. Good to be with you. I think diplomacy is one part of an overall strategy. Diplomacy in and of itself will not get this done, nor will sending weapons to Ukraine, nor will consolidating our NATO alliance, uh, nor will addressing the natural gas and energy challenges of Europe uh, posed by Russia or any of the other challenges So what we have to have is a a multifaceted approach that leverages all of those tools. So diplomacy backed by the NATO alliance uh, at the same time that we support Ukraine, bolster their defenses, increase the costs on Putin in the event of an invasion. Uh, It all has to be coordinated together. And that's what the administration appears to be doing. Do you think the administration should be doing anything more, though, right now? Well, I've been clear and I've been pushing the administration to send more defensive weapons and equipment to Ukraine, uh, both uh, different types, but also of greater quantity and much faster. Uh, I do think we're up against a small window of opportunity here, a condensing timeline. Uh, We don't have much time left. So we have to get those weapons to Ukraine, those uh, uh, pieces of equipment, uh, those supplies. They have to distribute them to their units. So just flying them in does not get it done. You have to distribute them. You have to train people how to use them. Uh, You have to get them out into the field. So there's a lot of things that have to happen. 
Uh, that's why we have to be moving faster than we are right now. There's also the question, though, and the administration has sent some big shipments of aid to Ukraine, but there's also the question of, of provocation, right? Sources telling CNN that the U.S. and some of its allies are discussing deploying even more troops to Eastern Europe. Do you think that's the right move, or could the Kremlin weaponize this as a provocation? I think it is the right move. Uh, Vladimir Putin will find or make the provocation. He, uh, he and he alone knows what he's going to do here. Nobody else knows what's going to happen. I do think the risk of an invasion is very high. I think it's likely. Uh, but at the end of the day, only Vladimir Putin knows what's going to happen. Uh, he has a history of provoking things and creating, fabricating provocations through false flag operations, uh, misinformation, disinformation. So uh, what we do and don't do, I, I think, is less relevant at this particular stage because Vladimir Putin will make up the excuse if he wants it. What we need to do is actually increase the costs. We need to change the calculus for Vladimir Putin so that he understands that invading will actually be very dangerous for him. It'll be uh, 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 very costly for him and his military. And it's actually going to have the opposite effect of what he's trying to do. He's trying to contain NATO and reestablish the Eastern, Soviet, uh, uh, Eastern European Soviet uh, Union states. He needs to understand that if he invades, it's going to have the opposite effect, that NATO is going to be bolstered, that we're going to reinforce the eastern flank. So changing the calculus is what needs to happen here. It's interesting, though, because as, as Clarissa pointed out, he's been staying silent and everyone's sort of left guessing what his thinking is and what could um, move the needle for him. You have the Deputy, Deputy Secretary of State today suggesting that the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing might impact Vladimir Putin's thinking and timeline, saying that China, quote, would not be ecstatic if Putin chose that moment to invade Ukraine. What do you think? What are the chances Putin makes his move before February 4th? I think that's too hard to tell, tying it to the Olympics. I think that is probably a stretch, uh, nor do I think the fact that, that Putin um, has or has not spoken in the last month is that consequential, or even what he says is that consequential because he controls his messaging very tightly. What's more important is all the other indicators, the troop movements, the logistical pieces that are put in place, what he's doing to bolster his own alliance uh, with the, the countries that are, are pivoting towards him, uh, the intelligence streams that we're looking at, uh, and, and all the other indicators that really show what his intent is. So we need to look at those, I think, and those are more important than maybe any words that come out of Vladimir Putin's mouth, because you certainly can't trust those. Congressman Jason Crow, thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Coming up, why time is running out to buy a home or a car before it gets more expensive. In the money lead, Wall Street closing the day down after a highly anticipated announcement affecting us all. Interest rates will go up, quote, soon, likely in March. That today from Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. His committee wants to slow inflation and the higher price you've been paying on everything from food to cars. Rates have been near zero since March of 2020 when the pandemic began. I want to bring in Rana Faruhar. She is CNN's a global economic analyst and associate editor at the Financial Times. So, Rana, put this into perspective for us. In the 1980s, interest rates near 20 percent. During the 2008-2009 financial meltdown, we considered rates around 5% record low. And now the benchmark is near zero. So how might a future rate hike help our current situation and slow rising prices? 
So interest rates basically slow down. If you think about a fire that's burning, you throw a blanket over it. When you raise interest rates, it's kind of like that. And, you know, this helps people in a sense because it starts to make things um, potentially more affordable. Just think about the housing market, for example. Anyone who's been trying to get in the housing market lately has had a hard time because, you know, houses go on the market, boom, they're snapped up the next day, prices go up. Once interest rates begin to rise, then the cost of borrowing gets more expensive, and then the economy starts to slow. And a certain amount of slowdown when we're running really red hot like we have been for the last year can be a good thing. So, yeah, I mean, so then are you surprised that the Fed hasn't raised uh, interest rates sooner? Yeah, I am actually. And in fact, I've been calling for them to raise rates for several years now, even before the pandemic. Um, My feeling was that it's really, really tricky to time uh, rate hikes and to time what's going on in the economy in general. And so it would have been nice, actually, you know, coming out of COVID if we had a little more wiggle room to play with policy wise. As it is, you've left the rate hike for you know quite some time. We've had low rates, you know, for the last several years. But really, if you look at it historically, for the last few decades, um, and now you've got an economy that's really overheating. All kinds of asset prices at record highs, uh, inflation at a forty-year high, and there's worries that the Fed is behind the curve and it's going to find itself playing catch-up even trying to raise rates potentially as the economy is slowing. And that could get dangerous if that happens. Have you ever seen the environment like this before? It sounds like I would not want to be Jerome Powell right now having to make these decisions. Oh, my gosh. I I would not want to be Jerome Powell or any central banker. Honestly, I've been doing this more than three decades. This is the trickiest environment I have ever seen. There are so many factors in play. Usually, When you're thinking about a rate hike, there's maybe one or two factors in play. Now we've got everything. We've got wage increases. We've got stock prices. We've got supply chain issues. And we have potentially a slowing global economy. So it is going to be a very tricky year. Buckle in. All right. Good advice. Rana Faruhar, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, after weeks of horrific gun violence, New York City's new mayor is bringing back a controversial police unit, which is making some people nervous. That's next. In our national lead, five New York City police officers have been shot in just the first month of the year, with two dying in the line of duty. These acts of violence coming off a year in which the city saw a rise in homicides. And amid this increase, CNN's Bringing Grass reports Mayor Eric Adams is reinstating a controversial plainclothes police unit with a troubled history. New York City facing a violent crime surge, two police officers and a baby among those killed in recent weeks. These guns on the streets are too much. Mayor Eric Adams telling New Yorkers, We won't go back to the bad old days. But he does want to make one old thing new again, reviving a version of the NYPD's plainclothes squad to suppress gun violence. Honestly, it's unknown right now how people are going to deal with these units. Uh, my, my assumption is that most New Yorkers want to be safe. The units now being called neighborhood safety teams is the latest iteration of anti-crime units the city has seen in years past, ones that reaped a notorious reputation. 
when you say anti-crime units, I think it does bring up some, some bad memories for a lot of communities in the city. In 2002, the street crimes unit of plainclothes officers was disbanded following backlash from the killing of 23-year-old Amadou Diallo. Police officers fired 41 shots at the unarmed man. In 2006, it was plainclothes cops who killed Sean Bell the morning of his wedding. And more recently, Eric Gardner died during an arrest by a plainclothes officer in 2014. This time around, officers won't be in uniform, but they will be identifiable by their clothing, according to the mayor's plan. They'll have specialized training, and officers will wear body cameras. If this is what the mayor is committed to doing, and this is what the police department is going to do, that they really learn from the lessons of the past, and that they hold officers to a really high standard, and that if and when officers don't meet that standard, they are held accountable. Adam says his experience as an NYPD captain will make this targeted policing different. I know how uh, unfair and abusive that unit was because I testified in federal court and the judge's ruling acknowledged my testimony. That testimony in the case of Floyd versus City of New York, a landmark federal class action suit which decided the NYPD's stop and frisk tactics, often used by anti-crime units, is unconstitutional. The judge writing, Senator Adams raised his concern that a disproportionate number of blacks and Hispanics were being targeted for stops. I find Senator Adams' testimony credible. We are going to learn from the past so we don't repeat the past. And we've talked to a lot of experts and everyone is really saying it's going to be a wait and see. Will this help bring down crime? Will officers whose actions are questioned be held accountable? And again, it's also not just on the NYPD, as the mayor has said. District attorneys and judges, they play a big part. You know, the Manhattan District Attorney, Pam, was on New Day this morning and said that he is going to hold gun possessions as a felony. Well, there's other four other DAs in this city. So the hope is to get them all together. The mayor says he'd like to meet with them weekly to help make this plan work. Pam? All right, Brent Gross, thanks so much. And up next, the moon is about to get a new giant crater thanks to a SpaceX rocket. In our out-of-this-world lead, SpaceX is headed to the moon, but not quite in the way they anticipated. Part of a Falcon 9 rocket launched by the company in February 2015 is on a collision course with the lunar surface. And scientists say the impact from the four-ton rocket could create a 65-foot crater. SpaceX has been picked by NASA to land the next American astronauts on the moon, including the first woman to walk the lunar surface. Astronomers say the tumbling rocket will crash on the far side of the moon on March 4th. I'm Pamela Brown, and for Jake Tapper, our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.